This is a unique and extraordinary weekend. And I think what's interesting is that their audiences are complementary to each other. Barbie, 65% female, 35% male. And Oppenheimer is the reverse. So here you have two movies that have A cinema scores, two movies that are 90 or above in both the Rotten Tomatoes critic score and the Rotten Tomatoes audience score. Audiences are loving both these quality movies. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Here this week with my colleague and co-host, Rebecca Pauly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro. And together we will be going over all the results from the historic Barbenheimer phenomenon. Huge weekend here at the Global Box Office. And then our feature segment, Rebecca will be speaking with one of our favorite people here in the industry, Marianne Abiad from Royal Corporation, coming up in the second half of this episode. But Rebecca, we have to jump right in. It was a big, big weekend, but, uh, you know, guilty as charged here, I didn't do the Barbenheimer thing. I didn't. Can I, do I keep my job? Do you, who fires us? If you get fired for that, I do too. No, I have plans to uh, see Oppenheimer. I have the tickets are secured for Wednesday. I max 70 millimeters. So I'm excited for, for that. Luckily, Eric made it to the press screening, but luckily he liked it so much that he does want to see it a second time. My dad saw Oppenheimer Thursday previews, like as soon as he could. I mean, it, it's you know, that's a very, <laughs> dad sort of movie, but uh, he texted me to tell me I should crash read the 900 page biography of Oppenheimer before I see the film, which I don't think is going to happen. <laughs> I don't think that's what crash read means. I don't think anyone can crash read 900 pages. That's going to be rough. That's going to be rough. I was actually at that uh, Tuesday preview screening with your partner, Rebecca, uh, Eric here in Manhattan. You know, great turnout uh, at that press screening. I haven't gotten to see Barbie yet. I'm really excited to go see it because we do have box office numbers to go over. But before we do, Rebecca, a couple of big headlines here in the exhibition world. Alamo Drafthouse has a new CEO. Alamo Drafthouse, the 12th largest cinema chain in North America, will have a new CEO. Current CEO Shelley Copeland-Taylor will be stepping down on August 11th. Coming into her position as CEO will be Michael Kusterman, who has been uh, with the chain for, for a little bit of time. He's president of the chain Currently, prior to this, he was uh, one of the main figures kind of overseeing uh, the launch of uh, Alamo subscription program and just their general revitalization uh, as we've gotten more and more movies back. Of course, Shelly Taylor coming into being CEO of Alamo Draft House during a pandemic right before Alamo uh, filed for Chapter 11, seeing them through uh, that financial restructuring, seeing them through a, a really, really rough time. So we definitely wish all the best for her for what she was able to accomplish there. Yeah, I think it's going to be a smooth transition. As you mentioned, a renewed Alamo coming back from bankruptcy under a, a seasoned executive from outside of the cinema industry, but very, very well experienced at companies like Starbucks in the retail side of things. Now, Michael Kosterman, an executive that has been elevated in recent years at Alamo Drafthouse, coming in as a natural transition here uh, for the dine-in chain. We'll be excited to see everything that happens with Alamo Drafthouse moving forward, including, I, I, don't, I didn't attend this, but maybe this is something that if, if I can escape to go see Barbie by myself, did you hear about these like Barbie dress-up parties that are happening at Alamo Drafthouse? Have you seen the pictures of them? They look wild. 
I haven't, but I have seen some people just like dressed in pink to go see Barbie out and about. It's like that, but on steroids. I do suggest checking out their socials. It's been incredible. And it's been incredible, I think, for a lot of circuits going through this entire phenomenon. We'll be going into that shortly. Because again, another big piece of news that AMC very, uh, let's say, not coincidentally, putting out this piece of news before Barbie and Oppenheimer opening, a controversial initiative on variable pricing coming to an end from the largest exhibition circuit in the country. Daniel, if you remember back in February, uh, they announced their Sightline at AMC initiative, basically taking auditoriums in three uh, cities where they were kind of focus testing, those being Chicago, New York, and Kansas City, and breaking the auditorium seats down into three tiers. There's your normal seats, price stays the same. There's the preferred sight line, which is the best seats in the house, the ones kind of in the center of the auditorium. Uh, you'd pay a little bit extra for that. And then if you were willing to sit uh, in the front row, uh, you would get a little bit knocked off of that ticket price. As you know, Daniel, it was kind of controversial upon the announcement of it. A lot of people, particularly on social media, were, were really kind of upset at the concept of it in theory and the way it was being rolled out. And then it was kind of quiet after that. I was kind of uh, didn't really know how much of a stink this decision made outside of that initial social media reaction. But now, a few months later, we know that it was not sufficiently successful for AMC to keep doing it. Apparently, nobody wants to sit in the front row, even if you get a dollar or a dollar fifty or whatever it is off of the cost of the ticket there. Something that AMC mentioned in their press release, basically that they had to stop doing this variable pricing scheme in the three cities where they tested it in order to stay competitive because none of the other chains in those markets kind of followed their lead and, and also went down the variable pricing route. So I think uh, maybe they, they expected to be a little bit more of a, of a trendsetter on that. Certainly AMC over in Europe, they've done very, they do variable pricing. It's, it's a more common thing outside of the domestic market than it is here. AMC tried to bring it across the pond and this time it did not work. Though we are seeing uh, instead of that, they're going to start doing uh, different seating concepts in the front row. It sounds kind of like a day bed sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And we have seen that, I think, across a number of different independent cinemas and, and chains, even here domestically. How do you make that front row more attractive? Maybe a discount doesn't exactly work. Like you said, it's, it sort of infers that the seat is worse. And if you're claiming that it's just as good as anywhere else, yeah, there's a different way, I think, to market those first couple of rows. I remember when I interviewed... Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC uh, back at CinemaCon, it was one of the first questions I asked. And he was very candid. He said, listen, we're still testing it. We don't want to overcommit to anything. It's like a little bit of time, but I think it's going to work. And it didn't. But he, he acknowledged that it's a, it's a tough sell to bring something like that into a market that is just not used to it. I mean, how long did it take for reserve seating to saturate the industry in North America to the extent that it has? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it took a very, very long time. As you note, something that was commonplace in many other foreign markets, research seating didn't really take off, what, until the last decade or so? And now it's commonplace. Variable pricing, I'm sure, is going to come back to the domestic market in one form or another. This just wasn't the right vehicle for it. We'll be talking a lot more about AMC in a little bit because they had some huge, huge numbers over the weekend. But first, let's talk about the weekend itself. Rebecca, this was the highest earning summer weekend on record at the domestic box office and the fourth highest earning weekend 
of all time. There are so many records. I'm just going to mention a couple offhand here. This was actually the first time in the industry where a film opened to $100 million plus domestically. And another one opening against it made more than $80 million in the same weekend. First time that ever happens, and it happened perfectly. We're tracking the Showtimes here through our parent company's Showtimes dashboard, and 45% of all the Showtimes in the United States were going to a combination of Barbie and Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, of course, being a three-hour-long movie, so that 45% means a little bit more than it usually would once we look at those Showtimes take that into account. I don't know where to start here. Let's take it film by film, Rebecca. Let's start with Barbie. Number one at the box office, we got actuals coming in higher than expected. What did it look like? Right now, we're looking at an estimated $162 million opening domestic. As you mentioned, that is higher than we expected. And we've seen in the past weeks, our expectations, our projections for the opening weekend of this film just rising, rising, rising. They were above even what we had hoped. Internationally, uh, we're looking at $182 million overseas in that opening weekend for a combined worldwide opening gross of $344 million. I mean, that's more than a lot of other tentpoles that have been released in cinemas this year have made just in general in their entire period, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's actually the largest domestic opening for a film of 2023 with $162 million. Originally, Warner Brothers was thinking it was going to come in at 155 for the weekend. Monday morning, they follow up saying, hey, actually came in above what we were expecting with those Sunday evening screenings. $162 million is the opening weekend record to beat in 2023, beating out Super Mario Brothers with $146.4 million, that being the prior record holder for the year. Looking at the top overseas markets here, the UK is the top international territory for the film with $22.9 million, followed by Mexico with $22.3, Brazil at $15.9 million, followed by Australia at 14.6. Then rounding out that list of top overseas markets, you have Spain with 9.9 and France with 9.8 million. Terrific, terrific numbers. And I was actually able to speak with uh, Jeff Goldstein, the head of domestic distribution over at Warner Brothers on Sunday to get his reactions on the weekend with these two big movies complementing each other in the market, looking at different overlapping demographics and having a phenomenon here. This is what Jeff Goldstein from Warner Brothers had to say about the Barbenheimer phenomenon. This is a unique and extraordinary weekend. And I think what's interesting is that their audiences are complementary to each other. Barbie, 65% female, 35% male. And Oppenheimer is the reverse. So here you have two movies that have A cinema scores, two movies that are 90 or above in both the Rotten Tomatoes critic score and the Rotten Tomatoes audience score. Audiences are loving both these quality movies. Some very impressive demographics there from the head of distribution, uh, domestic distribution over at Warner Brothers, Jeff Goldstein. And something else that Jeff was telling me, Rebecca, is that this didn't just happen. This was really a plan that was laid out at the beginning of the year. Jeff telling me that there was an offsite that Warner Brothers Discovery had with uh, obviously the new leadership coming in, the new corporate leadership at Discovery coming in. And David Saslav, the CEO of Warner Discovery, making it very clear in that January offsite, we are going all in 
on a theatrical-only push for Barbie this summer. And it was called Codename Barbie Summer, All Hands on Deck. Every aspect of the Warner Brothers Discovery Media empire was going to lean in to this be a historic opening weekend for the film. And by every expectation, it worked. Here's Jeff Goldstein on the marketing push of this Codename Barbie Summer over at Warner Brothers. I think the most interesting thing that I want to point out to you and and your listeners is the Warner Brother Discovery initiative across all businesses being spearheaded by our CEO, David Shazlov. Last January, he had us all in a offsite, and at that offsite, he called it codename Barbie Summer. And what he said to all of us is, let's harness the amazing energy and expertise and business base across all businesses from sports to streaming to networks to theatrical. And how do we really plus this up so that one and one equals three or maybe even four? And in this case, I would tell you one and one equal four or more. So I think this is an issue as you when a company really comes together and says, this is the one objective. We have something we can reach out to our audiences in a broad way everywhere. This is how we can get it done. And that was Jeff Goldstein speaking about how Warner Brothers Discovery really leaned into this marketing push for Barbie starting as early as January. For those of you who attended CinemaCon, you got to see a taste of what that strategy was going to look like in action. I think our entire staff took pictures with that Barbie standee where you could pretend to be inside a Barbie box. And uh, Rebecca, one of your favorite moments at the show was at the beginning of that Warner Brothers presentation, uh, Jeff Goldstein and his counterpart, the head of uh, international distribution over at Warner Brothers, Andrew Cripps, they walked on stage in hot pink suits to kick off that uh, CinemaCon presentation. I had to ask him, was that pink suit a rental? Do you still have it? Are you going to wear it in Miami for show East? It's Miami. Pink works perfectly with Miami. We had a good laugh about it. Here's what uh, Jeff Goldstein had to say about that uh, that side of the marketing effort to really push this movie out from the start, beginning with teasing it to exhibitors at CinemaCon in those pink suits. We did that as a reveal. We didn't even tell our own teams who we were doing this. We just thought it was funny. And when we came on stage, that room of almost 4,000 erupted. And many of the people at most knew, knew us or know us, but there was something even bigger than that. It was just the joy of pink, the excitement of what Barbie could be, the music. And I think that that is something that we need in this really difficult time geopolitically, this time of divide. Barbie brought us together. And what I, is interesting when you look at the domestic market, we see strength from Halifax, Nova Scotia, right to Honolulu. There's proportional joy in very small towns, mid-sized uh, markets, and large markets as well. Exhibitors have just been looking forward to this movie so much. I, I think there was really never any doubt among the exhibition community that this movie was going to do well. You know, it made me think of last year, 2022, the gentleman's trend, which was a similar kind of viral thing like the Barbenheimer phenomenon that was geared around 
going to the movies physically and, and turning that into an event. When that happened with the release of uh, Minions to the Rise of Gru in uh, July, early July, from Universal, releasing Oppenheimer this past weekend, the industry was caught flat-footed by it. And I think it was like a big kind of realization moment for a lot of people in the industry of like, oh, we should have we should have known about this. We should have been able to capitalize on this. You know, maybe our marketing and the way we're approaching selling ourselves isn't uh, isn't the best that it could be. Granted, Barbenheimer, I mean, you couldn't miss Barbenheimer, especially with all the work that Warner Brothers was doing promoting this title, as you mentioned. But exhibitors stepped up. I mean, you could go to Cinemark and get a Barbie branded blanket at AMC. They had uh, special little pink Corvettes. You mentioned the Alamo dress up parties, popcorn tubs. I mean, everybody, I feel like on the exhibition side of things was really prepared to take advantage of the opportunity that Barbie presented this industry with. Not so much for Oppenheimer, but I don't really think Oppenheimer avails itself that well with merch. So... <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's gonna. It was gonna translate uh, equally, but I think that was part of what made this work. It's two very different titles that are complementary to one another. They don't have different demographics. They had overlapping demographics, and then of course, part of that you had a lot of people going out and doing this organic social media marketing on their own accord saying, I'm going to the movies, I'm doing this double feature. We saw pictures leak of uh, Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino doing the double feature on the same day in LA. Those little moments of uh, fandom of cinephilia that I think uh, we, we really like to see online. And Jeff Goldstein was aware of this, keenly aware of this, and had a big shout out to say not only to all of the people that contributed to this uh, viral phenomenon, but also to all the cinemas that worked hard on their social media channels to make this a reality. This is what Jeff Goldstein, the head of domestic distribution over at Warner Brothers, had to say about that viral marketing. I think what I'm so impressed with is the creative genius across all social media platforms, from folks everywhere. They're coming up with really clever things, dressing in pink, and just going out to have a good so I give theater owners a huge uh, call out, both from the small exhibitors to the mid-sized exhibitors to the large exhibitors. They've reached out to all their customer base, and they've really done some really creative things. I've seen funny, funny posts. The one I love came from a theater chain in the Midwest called B&B Theaters that did a pro forma letter to an employer or to a school why they needed a sick bed. <laughs> and it's so silly, and it's fun, and the antidote for that is sitting in a theater and watching Barbie. So all in all, something really unique at this moment in time. But this doll will have long legs for sure, you know, given the exits, the cinema score, as well as the Rotten Tomatoes audience score, these movies will be around for a long time. And once again, that was Jeff Goldstein, the head of domestic distribution over at Warner Brothers. Great list here on the top 10 locations, the top 10 performing cinema sites all over North America. Rebecca, can you go over that list of the 10 highest grossing theaters for Barbie on opening weekend? 
Yeah, one, two, and three are all AMC locations. Uh, that's the AMC Burbank in Los Angeles, the AMC Empire Times Square in New York, and then down at number three, the AMC Lincoln Square. Number four, the Regal Urban Spectrum in Los Angeles, AMC Grove, number five, AMC Century City, number six, both of those in LA. Number seven, we have the AMC Boston Commons, number eight, the AMC in Disney Springs, Orlando, Florida. Then finally, uh, Regal in Houston, Texas, and the Regal Union Square here in New York being the 10th highest uh, grossing cinema domestically for Barbie on this opening weekend. Yeah, Daniel, I mean, I, for me, the, the success of Barbie here, even better, even kind of more poignant when you consider the fact that it really didn't have much of a premium screen footprint at all. That's something that obviously since uh, in the past few years, premium footprints and premium formats have become just crazy over-indexing in terms of some of these tentpoles. Barbie didn't really have access to a lot uh, of those screens because, of course, they were being taken up by Oppenheimer, the number two performer of the weekend, out from Universal. I mean, I'm, I have my ticket uh, for Wednesday to see it in IMAX 70 millimeter. I mean, the narrative around it with this one was, you got to see it in premium format. Yeah, and you have to, if you can, on IMAX, because it was shot on IMAX cameras, really good marketing campaign from IMAX to stand out in the very competitive premium format conversation, working closely with filmmakers. I think it's the model to follow in the very saturated premium format market right now. We'll go into those IMAX figures in a little bit because it was an $82.4 million domestic weekend here for Oppenheimer, the number 11 R-rated opening of all time here in North America. I did speak with Universal. They were able to confirm this for me because this has been an issue in the past for Universal titles. I had a feeling it would be different with the Christopher Nolan title. Oppenheimer will run for more than five weeks in theaters exclusively before it goes to PVOD. We remember going back to 2020, the studio making a unilateral deal with AMC to ensure that their films would go to PVOD after three weeks if they didn't earn a certain amount of money at the box office. What we are able to confirm now is that will not happen to Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer will have a long exclusively theatrical run that will be for more in the five weeks that happens with every other Universal title that has now been confirmed by the studio. Looking at this Barbenheimer phenomenon, I also spoke to Jim Orr, the president of domestic theatrical distribution over at Universal, uh, asking him, hey, you know, you're opening up against a movie like Barbie. Were you scared? Did you find it complimentary? At the end of the day, he agreed. This was a great opening weekend for Oppenheimer precisely because these are complimentary titles. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, you have two audiences that are that are somewhat different. Obviously, uh, you know, our, our title was uh, more male at 62%. But what's interesting is that our title was actually very broad. 32% of our audience was 18 to 24, which is incredible. 60% of our audience, 18 to 34. And so while we might have been slightly more male, we're still, you know, very broad for an age range. And I think it just overall speaks to the, the fact that people want to be in theaters, that there's no real legitimate replacement for the excitement and just the, the experience of being in a theater and seeing something like Alpenheimer on the big screen with, with everything that, uh, you know, that's been, has been crafted together. So, uh, and audiences, you know, when they realize something like that is, is worth the value proposition, it will be out and it will be out in droves. 
And that was Jim Moore, the president of domestic theatrical distribution over at Universal. Overseas, we also had a fantastic performance here. What did that look like, Rebecca, and what were the top markets? So globally, over the weekend, Oppenheimer earned 97.9, combining with that 82.4 million domestic, uh, to total out at 180.3 million globally. The biggest markets outside of North America, we have the UK with 14 million, India 7.1 million, France 7 million, Germany 6.6, and Australia 6.4. And uh, Daniel, internationally as well as domestically, premium formats have really proved a a vital part of this film's opening weekend, and I would imagine uh, for the rest of its run as well, not just IMAX, but just premium formats in a more general sense. That's right. Domestically, Oppenheimer bringing in 47% of its revenue domestically from premium large format, 17% of that figure coming from exhibitor branded PLF and 26% coming from IMAX. And I want to bring back Jim Orr here, back from a conversation that we had on Sunday to speak a little bit more on what that impact from PLF meant for this title. The existing branded premium large format screens also generated great returns for us. They're producing currently 17% of our total gross. So AMC's uh, Dolby Cinema, Rebuild's uh, RPX, Cinemark's XD screens have been, you know, tremendously important to our success this weekend. And uh, audiences love seeing, uh, again, our film in just the best format possible. But the IMAX was really, I mean, the IMAX results are just through the roof. You know I mean? Just absolutely through the roof. And they've been a tremendous partner for us. And as Jim Orr notes, uh, IMAX really overperforming uh, on this title. $21.1 million of the domestic figure coming from IMAX screens. Globally, the movie made $35 million of its opening weekend from 740 IMAX screens around the world. A great number, but that wasn't the only special format that uh, Oppenheimer was available in. For those of you that love watching a movie on celluloid, this movie was released on film as well in a number of screens. This is Jim Orr from Universal going over what those results were from the 140 screens domestically that presented Oppenheimer on 35mm or 70mm film. We have 140 projected film projected screens, 25 IMAX projected screens, just those 20, 70 millimeter screens, just those 25 screens are producing 2% of our box office this weekend, which is extraordinary. The total uh, film footprint is generating 6% for, yeah, for just 140 screens. That's just amazing. And again, when you ask something that lends itself like we do here with dollars off, people will love to see them that kind of format. All in all, a great event, a great opportunity for people to go out and and watch one of these movies, both of those movies, neither of those movies, because let's not forget, we had another uh, great slate here. We had Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, still in theaters. That was actually coming in at number four, being upset by the upstart uh, darling here at the box office, Sound of Freedom, coming in in third place in the domestic market with $20 million over the weekend. That was another viable option for moviegoers. And we saw both AMC and Cinemark really, really benefit from these crowds. And this new stage that we're coming into, hopefully, I hope it's a stage, I hope that's a lesson we take here, Rebecca, that this unsustainable model of one studio tentpole carrying an entire quarter isn't what's in the best interest for the industry. 
either distribution or exhibition. What we saw this weekend is what happens when you have two new movies opening and complementing each other on the same weekend while having other alternatives in the market to make sure that people that want to see neither of those movies have something to watch. Can you go over some of those records for both AMC and Cinemark? Yeah, I mean, I, I know I've always a fear with releasing more than one film in the weekend is, you know, what are these films going to cannibalize each other? That was definitely not the case with Barbie and Oppenheimer with AMC, the uh, largest exhibitor in North America, reporting that more than 87,000 members of their AMC Stubbs loyalty programs booked tickets to see both Barbie and Oppenheimer on the same day over the weekend. Of course, everyone's on social media has their opinions on like what order you should do that in. I'll chime in once I've been able to to see both of them, get a sense of that. But yeah, AMC set post-reopening single day attendance records on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in the United States. There, as I mentioned before, uh, they had that little Barbie pink Corvette thing, which was completely sold out. And then going down to our friends down in Texas with Cinemark, uh, it, this weekend was their best summer weekend box office, not just since the pandemic, uh, but ever. It's one of the highest grossing box office weekends in that company's history. I'm sure that just across the board, and not just at AMC and Cinemark. This was a really great weekend for exhibitors. And yeah, Daniel, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm interested to see what the lessons are that we take from this, both on the distribution filmmaking side and on the ways that exhibitors and distributors can work together to really eventize a film release. And I think what we accomplished here is what the National Association of Theater Owners and the Cinema Foundation have been gearing towards ever since cinemas reopened in the pandemic. The conversation this last weekend at the box office, worldwide, by the way, wasn't about seeing a movie. It was about going to the movies. What movie you saw was part of the conversation, but what you saw online, what you saw people talking about was the experience of going back to the cinema. And that's, I think, at the heart of this. I really, really hope we can take this as po positive momentum, make sure that the calendar can reflect weekends like this positively moving forward. Of course, with the actor strike, that is going to be a challenge, unfortunately. But the blueprint is there. It's available for us to study, take lessons from, and really grow from in the future. Rebecca, thank you so much for a great analysis here on a historic weekend at the movies. And now, going into our feature segment, as I previewed in the introduction, Mariana Biad, one of our favorite people here in the industry from Royal Corporation, speaking with Rebecca Polly on, uh, I think, a very interesting career that her and her uh, husband, George, have had in working with, I think, most cinemas in the United States. Rebecca, how can you preview this conversation with Marianne? Marianne just got the Burt Nathan Award, which is uh, the big award for, you know, in the concessions community at the NAC Hospitality Expo, which just happened last weekend. Uh, Daniel, a few years back, pre-pandemic, when we were at the Geneva Convention, the pair of them had won the Ben Marcus Award and delivered a keynote speech there at the Geneva Convention, just sort of talking about their story uh, and it was really inspiring, and I kind of just wanted to get it out there again so maybe people who were not there at Lake Geneva in, in Wisconsin could hear their story of coming over to America and becoming part of the exhibition family. And that's what we are. It's a family. That's what this industry can feel like. This is part of why I am happy that we have this podcast, that we can tell these sort of stories, because when people hear 
about the entertainment industry, the cinema industry. They think of Hollywood. But really, the truth is, this is a global industry with people working on the concession side, on the supply side, on the press side like ourselves. And we all come together through these conventions. We all get to know each other. Everyone that behind the scenes comes together to deliver a great experience at the movies. They're part of this community and the Abiyads are central to that story to moviegoers here in the United States. So without further ado, Rebecca Polly's interview. George and Marianne, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It was so inspiring to hear your story of starting and building Royal Corporation at the uh, Geneva Convention earlier, I believe it was 2019. I was wondering for our listeners if you could go over that story again of how you came to be uh, such an integral part of this exhibition family. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's the typical immigrant story. Uh, Ours has a little bit some twists in it because of the nature of where we came from. Uh, Lebanon historically uh, is dubbed for decades uh, prior to the 70s as the Switzerland of the Middle East. So the culture is a culture of tolerance, pluralism, free capitalism, and uh, tragically, the, the war, the civil war, sh- of no fault of the Lebanese, you know, it happens in the region, and uh, shredded the, the, the country, the culture, and the families. There is no family in Lebanon that has not suffered major losses in life and, and property. So that's the backdrop. Uh, you know, I come here pursuing uh, college education and my parents come to visit and uh, the, my father gets uh, gravely ill. And that changed the dynamic of the financial need. So I, I had to make immediate money. I mean, I, I majored and, and did graduate in math and, and philosophy logic. But nevertheless, the immediate need required uh, working at night. And uh, janitorial kind of rendered itself as uh, as the natural course. So I started in, in that business, actually started working as a janitor, then opened my own janitorial cleaning business. And in three, four years, uh, the business had grown drastically. And I felt that uh, there is a vacuum and a gap on the supply end of it because there is a disconnect between the operator and the supplier, because the operator typically is an immigrant and uh, the supplier is looking at a broader picture and and missing the specificity of of that need. So we felt we can fill that gap. I sold the cleaning business, started the supply business. And for a few years, the idea of customizing things and doing it was really an uphill battle. But we were the beneficiary of uh, of how great America is and how uh, trusting and uh, willfully giving uh, people a chance. So we were given chances by uh, so many people at the right time that enabled us to develop uh, programs very, very locally. You know, and it's ironic because many of these people were managers of a six screener or a 10 screener in Southern California. Fast forward 35 years later, they're uh, top executives at AMC or, or Cinemark. And that has been such a blessing. So that's really in a, in a, in a summarized way, the Cliff Note version of, uh, 
of uh, there is a lot packed in it, uh, but would require a lot of <laughs> a, a lot of blessings and a lot of nice opportunities and great people along the way that have impacted our life in so many ways. It feels like we're all growing up together in this industry, you know. Feels like a big uh, giant family that uh, the movie theater industry, right? It's uh, you look at it and it's so wonderful in so many ways and and big, but at the same time it's small because we're a giant, you know. We're we're family. We're all so connected in so many ways. Uh, that's that's just amazing. And I think the pandemic was such a big example of that of how we all huddled together, right? Whether it's from the distribution from the vendor community from every angle was just very inspiring to see. Mm -hmm. I mean, Royal had to really step up and I mean, everyone was wondering the best way to handle sanitation and safety and no one really knew in those early days, like what's, what's overkill, what's too little, what's too much. It had to have been a crazy time for you guys. The big point I reflect on that was just don't break the bank, you know, because a lot of, a lot of, companies came up and it was more about sell, 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 you know, all these items. And our big concern was, how is this going to look like a few years from now? Because we're in for the long haul. We've been in this industry going on three decades now. And we want to make sure that there is nothing wasted or something that's going to be spent that's just irrelevant. And, And looking back at it, we're just Glad that that was the case, right, George? Uh, to Marianne's point, I think uh, the industry, all industries were and markets were invaded by the quick buck trader that came in, wanted to, uh, you know, garner resources and then maximize their profit. For us, you know, we're looking at first we're we're going to research everything possible. Uh, we had many sources. And we made sure that uh, things are done thoughtfully, carefully, uh, and uh, ensured that uh, the trust that we have been bestowed on by all these theaters for three decades plus is reciprocated in action. I mean, given that, you don't really technically need to go to the trade shows that you go to in order to just sell things. And and you do because you, you see it as a family and you want to maintain those connections. And like your kids are there and you're, you're a whole family growing up within this industry. It's, it's really touching. To your point, it's more we go to these uh, trade shows mainly for support for the industry and then affirmation of our commitment and just being able to, especially like after COVID, this was just wonderful to just see people face to face. You know, we're always connecting in different ways, but uh, it was a huge blessing to just see people like this past CinemaCon was just wonderful to see such a big turnout. Uh, so many people there that we hadn't seen for a while. But yeah, our kids grew up in this industry too. If if we look at it, you know, we, we're immigrant, right? And our uh, immigrants and and our family is not very close by, even the ones who are in the U.S. So uh, not only us, we grew up, you know, in this industry. Our kids grew up in this industry because they have all these uh, 
extended family aunts and uncles but the and then according to them they're the really cool ones because they come with candy and all the amazing cool stuff that you see at the at the theater but but really it's we've had so many people in the industry that are truly family to us and family to our kids and uh, we lose our kids at CinemaCon because they go with our extended family who's the movie theater industry you know it's it's a blessing truly a blessing well, I wanted to ask you, I, you had a, a business relationship with a company required by Envoy Solutions earlier this year. Does that mean anything for Royal in terms of day-to-day, in terms of your involvement with the company? I mean, it's a very unique situation for us. And, you know, we've been approached for the last 15 years by different entities. This was a special situation with a unique background. The parent company is Coca-Cola Mexico. So there is a sensitivity and awareness of the type of uh, customer base we have. Uh, we uh, Royal remains uh, in its uh, current status. Marianne and I, uh, day-to-day basis, we're involved as we have been in everything. But uh, gives us the best of all worlds. Uh, we have uh, muscle and resources behind us that allows us to facilitate uh, the growth that uh, really was uh, launched and and pushed uh, during uh, COVID because we came through uh, to the entire theater market on many categories that uh, not necessarily were our forte, but we were able to get them. And uh, because we we believed... uh, you know, you, your partnerships in everything, human one-on-one or with big business, are tested uh, in difficult times. And you cannot be hypocritical by not having a stake. If you have a stake, you have to show that you deal with the good and the bad and the challenges that come with it. So that opened a lot of doors for us. And with this new dynamic, we were able to facilitate these things very efficiently and not diminish the, level, the high level of white glove service and high customer interface that we have accustomed our partners with. At the same time, get the same attention that uh, they had before. So this, this is an exciting period and uh, we're grateful for it. Another inflection point in history of Royal that hopefully allows us uh, to be able to move forward in, uh, in the right way. And that was Rebecca Pauly speaking with Royal Corporation's George and Marianne Abiad. Thank you so much for listening here to the Box Office Podcast. We are coming back next Thursday, like we do every Thursday. Don't miss an episode, so don't forget to subscribe. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Record Edit Podcast in collaboration with Box Office Pro and the Box Office Company. If you like what we do, please tell people to download us, show us all, you know, tell your friends. We'll be here every week if you keep on supporting us. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye.